as we alluded to this morning, I say we, it was really just me, uh, we are talking about a similar thing to this morning's sermon about mercy. Uh, we're going to talk about grace this evening in the life of David. Oop. Here's that ring that somebody lost. It's still up here. I don't know whose this is. It's fancy too, guys. It like has an outer and inner part that rotate. Anyway, if you lost that, let me know. Second uh, Samuel nine and ten is where we are. This is the high point of David's life. Uh, well, I say that of. I don't know. It's hard to say personally where he was. High point of his professional life, let's put it that way. Uh, the high point of his kingdom, high point of his victories in battle, high point of his, I don't know, maybe family life before things sort of take a nosedive. So as we think about the, the last few things that we've talked about in the life of David, really back in uh, beginning in 2 Samuel 5, since he's been anointed king, some of these things we didn't talk about, but they're in the narrative. Uh, we, of course, he's anointed king, and, and, we, and uh, I want to remind you that we've now begun begun to interweave 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles in our narrative. So David's anointed king, and then there's this long recollection in 1 Chronicles 11 and 12 that is later in Samuel about David's mighty men, about the people that were the, the sort of his warriors that were under him, probably many of whom were with him in the wilderness wandering around, but his mighty men that helped him in battle. Uh, 1 Chronicles 16, 8 through 46, we have this song of thanksgiving that he's been uh, anointed king and that he has restored, not restored, he has conquered Jerusalem. He's united the kingdom, right? There are no longer these sort of two factions and he's, he's sort of reunified everybody, brought the ark into Jerusalem and he has this song of thanksgiving. Then uh, 2 Samuel 5 records his defeat. Well, 1 Chronicles records this too. His defeat of the Philistines. He has a lot of military victory. And then there's this long list in 2 Samuel 8 of his his military victories over the variety of people who are outside of Israel. This is sort of the pinnacle. Things are not always going to be this good, but it's interesting to note what he does in his period of success. And this is true of all of us, right? We think about times in our life where things are bad. We have sort of our reactions to them, and maybe that helps us draw closer to God. Prosperity can sometimes dull our sense of need for God, but when times are bad, we're sort of drawn to him. But David, when he is successful, when he is in sort of a time of peace, he looks around and thinks about who he can be a blessing to, rather than just keeping it all to himself. And so 2 Samuel 9 and 10 serve as a great picture of what grace looks like, both as we give it, very similar to what we talked about this morning, but more importantly, as God gives it. David serving as, again, the prototype or the shadow, as the Hebrew writer would say, of the good things to come. 2 Samuel 9, verse 1. So this is, again, in the period he's had great military victories. The ark has been restored. He's in this period of peace. And David said, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called to him and said to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? He said, I am your servant. Uh, there's, there's an interesting tension as we go through this story. Of course, we know the history because we've, we've read all of it up in our series so far. The history between Saul and David. Saul, of course, the, the enemy of David and, and really the enemy of God towards the end of his life and, and chasing David in the wilderness and David's, the times where he spares Saul's life. And of course, he has this friendship with Jonathan. There's this, a lot of family history here that most outsiders, even when David was alive, most outsiders expected David to react a certain way to Saul. 
he comes upon Saul twice in the wilderness and his men say both times, this is it, kill him, this is your chance, murder the dude. And David says, no, I'm not going to do that. Here, similarly, I think we see sort of the expectation of people in Saul's house that David's going to come for vengeance. David's going to come for retribution for Saul. And so he says, are you Ziba? And he says, I'm your servant. He really wants to get off on the right foot with David. The king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. Now, why does it matter that he's crippled? This is, again, we begin to see the, the sort of prototypical nature of grace in the story. The son of Jonathan... Mephibosheth, I'm going to really try to say that right every time. I doubt that I'm going to be able to succeed. But Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, has nothing to offer David. Nothing at all. Can't be a military. You know, the, we had that list of mighty men. In We didn't read it, but that list of mighty men, of David's mighty men. He's the opposite. Not going to be, a, not going to be any sort of aid in battle. He doesn't bring anything to the table. Doesn't really have much resources to speak of. He is... A liability. David's going to have to support him, right? That's what David's signing up for here. And so the factors against Mephibosheth are adding up. Son of Saul, although he has one big factor in his favor, which again, Ziba brings out immediately. He's not, the, it's not just like he's a grandson of Saul. He is the son of Jonathan, David's best friend, right? The man that David loved so much that David promised to watch out for his family. David made this, this covenant with Jonathan that there would be nothing between them. So we have the factors against Mephibosheth, grandson of Saul, offers nothing to David, simply a drain on resources, can't provide anything. But on the other hand, we have one overwhelming positive, that he is the son of Jonathan's friend. And again, we see this sort of balance as we think about the grace. Well, I don't want to get ahead of my notes. Let's keep my notes. That's why I have notes. Uh, 2 Samuel 9.1. So we see this. David said, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Uh, we go back to 1 Samuel 18.3. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And then this is in 1 Samuel 24 verse 20. This is Saul speaking to David, sort of in a rare moment of self-awareness. And now, I, behold, I know that you will surely be king. Your kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. So not only has we have this sort of the love that David had for Jonathan, we have the desire for David to show love and kindness to this descendant, but he did make this promise to Saul. And Saul, again, with this weird moment of self-awareness, he knows God has chosen David Promise me. And David makes this promise. So David's history and character serve as the basis for the grace that he is about to extend to Mephibosheth. And really, you go through the story of David, the only natural conclusion that we would come to that David would do in this story is to show kindness based on who David is and based on what has happened in David's life. This is the natural outpouring of his love for Jonathan and his character as one who keeps his word to Saul. And we think about, of course, why is grace given? Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8, we think about grace from God. It was not because you are more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. This is, of course, referring to Israel. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. These are the two same reasons 
that David has for offering grace to Mephibosheth because of his love and his oath. That's, that's what David did, right? He had love for Jonathan and he made an oath to Saul. That's how God was dealing with the Israelites. He made an oath to their fathers, specifically to Abraham, right? This covenant that he made with Abraham. But more importantly, it was his love that he had decided to show to the Israelites. 2 Timothy 1.9, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. We are nothing. We're a liability. So much so that Jesus had to die to extend the grace to us. Ephesians 2, 4 through, uh, 4 through 5, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And you think about this idea, Saul, the enemy of David, Mephibosheth, the descendant of Saul, but because of David's love for Jonathan, his oath that he made, God, because of his love, not because we're great, not because we're awesome, not because we deserve it, we are, we are Mephibosheth, the son of the enemy, Servants of God's enemy, the devil, right? We're all that way at the beginning. We can't do anything to help ourselves. Mephibosheth had nothing to offer. We have nothing to offer. But God extends grace because of his love and character. So we keep reading. Verse 5 of 2 Samuel 9. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar, and Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. Just like Ziba, right? Ziba said the same thing. That you can see the undercurrent of fear, right? As they approach, Ziba comes to David. Uh, no, I'm not Mephibosheth's servant. I'm your servant. Mephibosheth comes to him. I am your servant. Please don't kill me. Please do not kill me, right? It's like, I don't think anybody can believe that David's going to do this. Everybody expects David to be vindictive. And yet at the same time, we should have an element of this fear in our approach to God, shouldn't we? Who is almighty and just, who we do not deserve. We come before him and pay homage to him. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear. For I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that I, you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? What blessings does David give to the son of his enemy? I'm not going to kill you like everybody thinks I will. I'm going to restore to you the land of Saul. I'm going to give you back all the land that you have lost. Of course, remember there was the whole business with, uh, with Abner and the rebellion. And of course, the commander of Saul's army sort of takes people away. And then he defects to David. And there's this unification. Presumably somewhere in that, the, the ancestral land of Saul had been sort of co-opted for any number of purposes. David says, I'm going to restore that. And then not only that, but I will support you. Right? You shall eat at my table always. Because again, Mephibosheth has nothing to offer. David's just doing this because he's kind, because of the grace that he has. We think about it again, we come to our grace given to us by God. Titus 3, 4 through 7, but when the goodness and loving kindness of our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, 
by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Ephesians 2, 6 or 7, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. You shall eat from my table. Isn't that what God is offering? Eat from my table. Always. He has seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And we think about the things that David does. He does not pursue vindication, or not vindication, vindictiveness. He does not demonstrate vindictiveness, but mercy, as God demonstrates for us. He offers to restore the ancestral land to Mephibosheth. Of course, it's not being restored to us, but we are offered a land, aren't we? The promised land, not Canaan, but the heavenly Jerusalem. We read it several weeks ago. You have come to the kingdom that cannot be shaken, to the heavenly Jerusalem, this land that we are being offered, this place to belong, and that he will support us. Of course, we're thinking about the food, maybe in physical terms, but we certainly participated in it this morning, didn't we? This, even this evening, some of us this evening. The food that gives eternal life. Eating at his table always. Second Samuel 9, 11. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And he, all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem for he always ate at the king's table. And then it reemphasizes this. Now he was lame in both of his feet. It's emphasized twice in the story. It's a weird detail to call out twice in such a short amount of time. We already knew that. Why is the author re-recording this? Because it's important. Because it matters. David essentially volunteered to share with somebody who could never repay him, someone who formerly would have been an enemy. And again, what did David expect to get out of it? Zip. Because Mephibosheth couldn't do anything. Right? He was totally dependent upon the kindness of others. Couldn't be a warrior. Now, maybe he could serve sort of as some sort of counsel or some sort of advisor. I don't know. There's never any indication that Mephibosheth did that. It certainly seems to be the case that David is just supporting him wholesale without any expectation of repayment. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10. Oh, and I, I want to note... That didn't end when he learned that Mephibosheth was lame. He just pursued it. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. This is, of course, Paul, right? Paul, when he prays three times to remove the thorn in the flesh, and God says, no, why? My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, I am strong. We are Mephibosheth. We do not deserve the grace of God. We do not deserve to eat at his table. And just because we come and we eat at his table doesn't make us suddenly awesome. Now we grow and we mature, hopefully, over time. But how much does God have to put up with in those he extends grace to? How much did he have to put up with you this week? How much did he have to forgive? 
maybe quite a bit, right? Our weaknesses never really go away. Mephibosheth was always lame, and David was always responsible for that, for caring for him for that. God signed up in his sacrifice of Jesus to put up with our weaknesses, not just put up with, but to demonstrate his power in our weaknesses. That's what his grace is. That I don't have to be good enough or strong enough or smart enough or whatever enough. Because he is. When do we stop being somebody that God has to help and maintain by his own power? When do we, when do we contribute positively in the balance of power in this relationship? And the answer is never. Even the things that we do in service to God, the things that we sort of repay, quote-unquote repay, back to God, we only do by his power. We only do because of the spirit that he has given to us. We do by him enabling us to do those things. So when we think about this sort of balance of grace versus repayment in this scenario, there's never a scenario in our relationship with God where we start making a positive difference in our balance sheet because everything we do that's good comes from him. Every ability we have. It's because he gave it to us. Every time I'm bold, it is because of the strength that he has given me. There is never a situation where I start making it even with God. And that's okay. That's the whole deal. That's what God has promised. That's the greatness of the promise of God's grace. Is that he will do all that is necessary if we will just do our best. Woeful though it is, if we will just do the best that we can, that's all that is required. It doesn't need to be awesome. It just needs to be our best because the power comes from him. So success and peace did not lead David to be stingy and selfish as it so often can, right? You could think about, I'm in this area of peace. I don't have any other enemies outside of Israel to fight. And sometimes sort of military people maybe can get this way where they just start looking for more fights to have. David doesn't do that, right? David is in this time of peace and he thinks... Who can I help? Is there anybody left of Jonathan's house that I can help? Now, he hadn't gotten up to it at this point. You think to himself, why is he waiting until now? Well, because up until this point, he's still trying to manage the kingdom, right? He's still trying to drive out the enemies of Israel. He's consolidating power. Now he gets into a position where he can fulfill his promise. And so he does not forget. He looks around. Who can he do this for? Because of his love and not because of what Mephibosheth could do for him, David was kind and generous. And so we ask the question again for ourselves. As an example of the grace that we extend to others. Do you only help those who can repay? We talked about it this morning. I really want to emphasize it again. Mercy means helping those who cannot help you in return. Do you let the animosity of others hold you back from being generous? Maybe not even the person that you're thinking about helping, but how you, you, maybe we think too much about what other people would think. Oh, I can't help so-and-so. What's everybody else going to think? Who cares? What does God think? What does God want you to do? David didn't care what everybody else thought. David just did what he thought was right. A lot of the time it turned out to be correct because he didn't listen to what everybody else wanted. How do you treat those that should be your enemy? Again, very simple question. Do you extend to them grace? Help them when they need help? Or are you pursuing vindictiveness? Now, as we conclude, Mephibosheth recognized the goodness of David's grace but others did not, as we think about the grace that God offers to us in 2 Samuel 10, 1 through 2. After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanan, 
the son, his son reigned in his place, and David said, I will deal loyally with Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. Of course, presumably as he was wandering around in the wilderness, right? So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. And by this point, it should be obvious to the people around Israel that David was blessed with military strength. It just, the narrative just concluded with a whole section of David's military victories, his conquests, right? You'd think the Ammonites would figure it out by now. Hey, David, don't mess with David. Don't mess with this guy. David was, again, under no obligation to deal graciously with the Ammonites. And we might actually say he's kind of doing a bad thing here. And that he shouldn't be doing this. He should just be killing them all. Because that's what God wanted the people to do is drive out all the Canaanites. So he shouldn't maybe even be doing this. But still, right, he's under no obligation to deal graciously with the Ammonites. But here he is. But how do they respond? The princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan, their lord, do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? The contrast between this and the story of Mephibosheth cannot be coincidence that these are one right after the other in the Bible. Mephibosheth could have had this attitude, right? The counselors of Mephibosheth, Ziba, could have had this attitude. David's not doing this for good reasons. Has not David sent his servants to search the city to spy it out to overthrow it? So Hanan took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. Rather than accept the grace at face value, the Ammonites rejected the offer and turned away from David, which led to what? Well, destruction. Jude 1.4. As we think about, I say Jude 1.4, Jude 4. So many people offered the grace of God who choose to reject for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Much like the Ammonites were designated for condemnation long ago. Un ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 12, 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? 2 Timothy 2.11, the saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. We can accept God's grace and dine at his table. That is ultimately the invitation, right? This thing that we did right here, that's the, we call it sometimes the Lord's table, right? The offer of salvation, the renewal of the covenant every week, but that's just a symbol for a, a thing that is happening overall in our lives. The restoration of our lives as a whole. Mephibosheth did not get a one-time offer. He got a continual, perpetual offer of grace. You will dine in my table, not tonight, but always. That's the offer of grace from God. That we can dine at his table always. Every week, sure, when we have communion... But whenever we pray, whenever we worship, whenever we read his word, whenever we're in communion with him for any reason, or we can refuse his grace like the Ammonites refused David, and they were destroyed. They were subject to the wrath of God, to be sure, implemented through David. So we think about our invitation tonight. We're going to get done early again. I, I should have two sermon slides. I should have sermon slides for with pew packers and sermon slides without pew packers. Get like three more slides in. The invitation is simple. And really it's the invitation of David to Mephibosheth, right? Come. Fear not. I'm not going to destroy you. 
come, I will restore your lands, I will restore your fortunes, I will give you what you need. That is what God offers tonight. A simple offer, one that we can accept or reject at our own choosing. What if Mephibosheth had rejected David's invitation? How do you think that would have gone over? Probably not great. At the bare minimum, we would have been no better off, but probably things would have been worse off for Mephibosheth. We also should accept tonight. If you're ready, come while we stand and sing.